American Catholic History is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Hello and welcome to American Catholic History. If you like our podcast, help others find it by sharing the episodes and giving us a five-star rating wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Noelle Heaster-Crow. And I'm Tom Crow. Today we're talking about Archbishop Jean-Baptiste Lamy, the first bishop and first archbishop of Santa Fe, New Mexico. He was the strong and energetic leader that that region needed at the time, and he left an unmistakably French mark on the church in New Mexico. His remarkable story was captured in the lovely historical novel Death Comes for the Archbishop, written by Willa Cather and published in 1927, 39 years after his death. I read this book a few years ago. It is a wonderful book, and we'll have a link to where you can purchase it on our website, AmericanCatholicHistory.org. But a French bishop in Santa Fe... Santa Fe had been a city since 1610 when the region was under Spanish control. It had been a capital city of the region for most of its history. So it just seems incongruous that the first bishop would be a Frenchman. Yeah. And the one time I was in Santa Fe many years ago, before I really got interested in studying American Catholic history, I was struck by the Cathedral of St. Francis, which is on the main square of the city. The group I was with was walking through the open air market with all of the adobe structures and southwestern architecture. And then we come around the corner into the square and just boom, there was this large French Romanesque church dominating one side of the market square. It is a lovely church, but it just felt out of place somehow. That out-of-placeness is kind of what we're talking about here. But now that I know more about Archbishop Lamy and the history of the church in that region, it all makes more sense. So let's talk about Jean-Baptiste Lamy and where he came from and how he ended up in the American Southwest. Jean-Baptiste Lamy was born in 1814 in the Auvergne region of south-central France. He grew up in a strong Catholic family and went to the Sulpician Seminary in Montferrand. While in seminary, he became good friends with another seminarian who was two years ahead of him, Jean-Projectus Machabouf. What a name. The Sulpician Seminary trained many priests to go out on mission, and Lamy and Machabouf both desired that life. The seminary was visited by Sulpician missionaries from the New World, including a name that's familiar to us, Benedict Joseph Flaget. By this point, Flaget was an old man and had been bishop in Bardstown, Kentucky for about 25 years. Everything comes back to Bardstown. He was back in France for his own interests and on behalf of the Bishop of Cincinnati, John Baptist Purcell, to find more priests to come help in the Kentucky and Ohio frontiers. Lamy, Machabouf, and three other priests leapt at the opportunity. Machabouf was ordained in 1836, Lamy in 1839. And that year, 1839, they both boarded a ship at Le Havre to go be missionaries in the wilds of Ohio. Ohio. Lamy's first assignment was in North Central Ohio. His home base was at Danville, but he traveled many miles through the forest wilderness to tend to the German, English, Irish, Polish, and other communities that he found throughout the region. Over his 11 years in Ohio, he established parishes in many towns and tended to the needs of his disparate flock. During the same time, Machabouf was assigned to the parish in Tiffin, Ohio, which is in the northwest corner of the state, and he did similar work to Lamy. 
In a preview of things to come, they both clashed with the Protestant ministers who had established their congregations in the towns and who very much resented all of these Catholics coming in, particularly the Irish. But Lamy acquitted himself well and was noticed by the higher-ups as a man of prayer, of gentle but firm persuasion, of great energy, and of organization. So in 1850, he was named Vicar Apostolic of the new Vicariate of New Mexico. This deserves some explanation, since that territory had been in the hands of the Spanish crown and then the Mexican government after Mexico gained its independence in 1821. Yes. So the region that is the present-day states of New Mexico, Arizona, and Colorado had been known as Nuevo Mexico, or New Mexico, under both Spanish rule and then under Mexican rule. The city of Santa Fe in the foothills of the Sangre de Cristo Mountains was its capital. When the Spanish were still in charge, Spanish Franciscans ministered to the entire region, but once the Spanish were gone, the Franciscans left, and the territory was ministered by basically autonomous priests. They were basically autonomous because the diocese was based in Durango, and we don't mean Colorado, we mean Durango, Mexico, which is about 900 miles due south of Santa Fe. This will become important for other reasons in a bit, but right now what it means is that the priests in this region were unsupervised and could adjust the practice and discipline of the faith and the sacraments in ways that they preferred. Many of the priests did go a bit awry. Some had mistresses. Most of them lived very comfortable lives that were far beyond what a missionary among poor workers should live. Pietistic societies with unusual practices arose among the faithful. The sacraments took on elements of the pagan native cultures. Knowledge of the faith was scarce or quite tainted. So while the population was almost entirely Catholic and fiercely so, the Catholicism they practiced was not very Catholic. But big changes came for Nuevo Mexico in the late 1840s. Yes. Between 1846 and 1848, the United States and Mexico fought the Mexican-American War, which the Americans won. In the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, which ended the war, Mexico ceded Nuevo Mexico and other territory in the southwest to the United States. As far as the church was concerned, this meant that Nuevo Mexico, or New Mexico as it was now officially called since it was an American territory, was no longer the concern of Durango, but was under the jurisdiction of Baltimore and the American hierarchy. So in 1849, the American bishops wrote to Pius IX and asked him to erect an apostolic vicariate for the region, and they asked him to name Jean-Baptiste Lamy as the vicar apostolic. Pius IX agreed, and in 1850, this was done. Father Lamy was consecrated a bishop in November of 1850. His first act was to name his old friend Father Machabouf to be his vicar general, and then he immediately set off for his new home. His voyage took him down the Ohio River and then the Mississippi to the Gulf of Mexico and across to Galveston. At Galveston, their ship ran aground and sank, and all of Bishop Lemmy's possessions were lost except for one trunk, which had some books, vestments, and a few other essentials in it. So he had to borrow the money to make the trek overland to San Antonio, where he met up with Father Machabouf, and the two of them traveled to El Paso and then northwest to Santa Fe. The rough and dangerous voyage took a year, but they arrived at Santa Fe to much fanfare and joyous greeting in 1851. But that was pretty much the high point of Lemmy's relations with his native clergy. For starters, as far as they were concerned, he was not their bishop. He had all of the necessary papers, the letters from the Vatican, etc., but they wouldn't buy it because they hadn't been told about it by their own bishop down in Durango. 
So Lamy wrote to Bishop Jose Antonio Zuberia in Durango and asked him to send a letter to set things straight with the clergy in New Mexico. There was no reply. So he wrote again and waited for a reply. None came. The priests were still not obeying him. Eventually, since it was clear there was only one way he was going to rectify matters, he got on his horse and rode the nearly 1,000 miles to Durango to meet with Bishop Zuberia face to face. This journey by car over today's highways would take about 20 hours. It took Bishop Lamy five weeks to reach Durango. But once he was there, the matter was fairly quickly cleared up. The problem, as it turned out, was that Bishop Zuberia had not received word from the Vatican of the decision to separate the new American territories from his diocese, and he wasn't thrilled with the decision anyhow. But once Bishop Lamy presented him with the proper documentation, Bishop Zuberia acknowledged the reality and grudgingly wrote the letter Bishop Lamy requested, instructing the priests in the new vicariate to be obedient to Bishop Lamy. Right. So now everything was great and they were all perfectly obedient. Yeah, no. Of course not. No. They still resisted because he demanded that they abandon the un-Catholic practices they'd gotten accustomed to. They protested his order that they give up their mistresses. Yes, and they insisted that while celibacy might be okay for French priests, it simply wouldn't work for them. Yeah. They protested against his financial reforms. He insisted that the tithe be reinstated and surplus monies from wealthier parishes be shared with poorer parishes. They resisted his insistence that the Mass be done properly. And they resisted his suppression of the society known as Los Penitentes, a men's group that did lots of good work, but also partook in some really gruesome physical practices of penance. During Holy Week, these would include scourgings and even crucifixions to the point of unconsciousness. Bishop Lemmy also suspended priests who refused to give up their two worldly lives, and he even excommunicated one in particular who would not obey. That one went off and continued offering the Mass and acting as a priest in private arrangements. Man, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Seriously. There are no new problems under the sun, just new people to cause them. Amen. So in 1853, the Vicariate of New Mexico was made the Diocese of Santa Fe with Lamy as bishop. He traveled to Europe in 1854 and had an audience with Pope Pius IX, and when he returned, he brought back a number of French priests and a Spanish priest with him to help tend the flock. In the late 1850s and into the 1860s, he made pastoral visits into Colorado and Arizona, where he was welcomed with enthusiasm. He traveled hundreds and hundreds of miles on horseback through the arid and harsh climate, sometimes walking alongside his horse rather than riding to allow the beast to rest due to the heat and lack of water. He established parishes in Tucson, Arizona, and many in Colorado, eventually putting his old friend Father Machabuf in charge of the parishes in northern Colorado. But it wasn't all fighting with recalcitrant priests. He also lamented the lack of industry and economic opportunities that he found. The people raised livestock and did some farming, but there were no factories and practically no way to trade their agricultural products with the outside world. Yes, travel back to the East meant a long and very dangerous journey, either through land dominated by hostile Apache and Comanche, or on a boat across the Gulf and up the Mississippi. Neither was simple or conducive to economic development. New Mexico was, in many ways, a society and world unto itself. It was politically part of the United States, as it had been part of Mexico, but culturally, economically, and spiritually, it was very separate. Another interesting thing about this is what it meant for how quickly the region did not become American. 
The people were still culturally Spanish-Mexican, and Lamy and his priests were culturally French. Neither the natives nor Bishop Lamy had grown up in an East Coast waspish culture where separation of church and state was a thing. It's not that theocracy was a desire for any of them, but the clerics did hold considerable sway over civic matters due to their offices. One manifestation of this was how Bishop Lamy reacted to Protestant missionaries. He couldn't stop them coming into the region, but... Boy, he made it clear that they weren't welcome. Now, it seems he had little to worry about. The native populations were even less interested in the iconoclastic and austere faith proposed by the Methodist and Baptist missionaries than they were in the authentic Catholicism that Lamy was working to restore. But Lamy was not leaving anything to chance. He made it clear that he would oppose their proselytism wherever they tried to set up shop. This actually became one of the points of tension between him and one of the problematic priests— Father Martinez of Taos, the one who Lamy would eventually excommunicate, actually welcomed the Protestant missionaries into Taos and began to work with them in various ways. Lamy was having none of it. He ended that relationship quickly. Another effort Lamy undertook was the education of the youth. When he arrived, he lamented the deplorable condition of education and immediately set about to fix this. Shortly after arriving in 1851, he invited religious communities to Santa Fe to establish schools for the boys and the girls. For the girls' school, he invited the Sisters of Loretto, the ones back in Kentucky, to come to Santa Fe. The sisters accepted the call and six came out, arriving in 1853, and they established Loretto Academy, which would operate until 1966. At the same time, 1851, Lamy invited the Christian brothers from his native France, but they took a bit longer to respond. It wasn't until 1859 that four Christian brothers arrived and established the school for boys, El Colegio de San Miguel. This school still exists today as St. Michael's High School, and it became coeducational in 1966 upon the closure of Loretto Academy. Now, we've talked about the Sisters of Loretto a bit before. They were founded in 1812 by Father Charles Nearings. We've said his name a lot, but not told his story. And they were set, uh, founded on Father Baden's farm near Springfield, Kentucky. That's the ones. They came up just a few weeks ago in episode 98. And we're going to see their original home when we lead a pilgrimage to the Kentucky Holy Land and Bourbon Country in August of this year. Yes, August 9th to 14th. Everyone should get details at AmericanCatholicHistory.org. It's going to be a fantastic time. Join us. Spaces are filling up, so sign up soon. The Sisters of Loretto were also the ones who built the famous Loretto Chapel there in Santa Fe. That chapel has the miraculous staircase, which was purportedly built by St. Joseph. Yeah, we talked about the Sisters of Loretto coming out to Santa Fe, building their chapel and the miraculous staircase in episode 17. I saw that staircase when I was in Santa Fe. It's an incredible thing to look at. And while it may not be truly miraculous, it certainly is a marvel to engineers. But that chapel wasn't built for another 20 years after the sisters arrived. Right. It was built in the 1870s during the same time that Bishop Lamy was finally building himself a new and grand cathedral. And it happened kind of because Bishop Lamy was building a new cathedral. Uh, so what happened was this. Lamy finally managed to get finances and arrangements in place in the late 1860s to build a fitting cathedral for the growing diocese. To make it happen, he imported a French architect, Antoine Mouly. They imported the sandstone from a quarry in France and the rose window and windows for the, of the Twelve Apostles for the nave, where they were also imported from France. 
As mentioned toward the beginning of this episode, they went with the French Romanesque revival style of architecture with its square towers, rounded arches, and Corinthian columns. It is a gorgeous edifice, even though, like I said, it really sticks out amid the southwestern adobe construction all around it. The cathedral took a total of 17 years to complete, and it was dedicated in honor of St. Francis of Assisi in 1886. But there were a few changes by this point. First, Santa Fe had been elevated to archdiocese and Lamy made archbishop in 1875. And second, after serving as archbishop for 10 years, Lamy had retired from his archiepiscopal duties in 1885. Also, the railroad reached Santa Fe in the early 1880s. Which railroad? <laughs> the Atchison, Topeka, and the Santa Fe. Of course. Of course. This, <laughs> this new connection changed things significantly for Santa Fe and the entire Southwest. It made economic activity with the outside world much easier. It meant greater opportunity for New Mexicans to travel east for education or business. It meant more people could come to settle this region. And the region that people found when they came out was a much more developed, settled, and civilized place than it had been just 30 years prior, thanks in large part to the work of Archbishop Lamy. But by this point, he was spent. An attack of illness struck him in the early 1880s, and though he recovered, he was never quite the same. After retiring in 1885, he spent his time in peace at his retreat outside of town called Bishop's Lodge. Here he had cultivated a garden and built a modest home as a place to get away. Death finally came for the Archbishop on February 13, 1888. He had seen the unruly diocese mostly pacified, had established schools for boys and girls, plus a seminary and many hospitals. He had built a cathedral that would last. He had regularized the observance of the faith in that region. After his funeral, he was buried under the floor of the sanctuary of the Cathedral of St. Francis. In honor of the great man, two towns were named Lamy. One is in New Mexico, about 18 miles south of Santa Fe. The other is the town in France near the quarry from which was taken the sandstone used for the Cathedral of St. Francis. In 2005, Pope Benedict XVI elevated the Cathedral of St. Francis to the dignity of a basilica. Before the Cathedral of St. Francis, there now stand three statues, one of St. Francis, of course, one of St. Kateri Tekawitha, the first Native American to be canonized, and the third is of Archbishop Jean-Baptiste Lamy. You've been listening to American Catholic History on the StarQuest Production Network. If you've been enjoying our podcast, please help others find it by sharing this episode and by giving us a five-star rating and a good review. We also ask you to support the many productions of SQPN at sqpn.com give. To learn more about Jean-Baptiste Lamy, to find previous episodes, or to learn about our upcoming pilgrimages to important and unforgettable Catholic holy sites, please visit AmericanCatholicHistory.org. We also love feedback and hearing about great Catholic history sites and stories from all over. You can email us at history at sqpn.com or find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash American Catholic History, on Instagram at ACH underscore podcast, or follow StarQuest on Twitter at SQPN. I'm Noelle Heaster-Crow. And I'm Tom Crow. Thank you once again for joining us on American Catholic History on StarQuest.